0: Please take your Bibles again to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Our pastor has been preaching through this chapter. We have a short reading today, verses 28 to 30. Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Well if God's so great salvation is like a great mountain range then Romans 8:29 and 30 is like the very top of the tallest mountain where the view is breathtaking Because from here this vantage point we're given to see all the way back into eternity past to the very beginning of our salvation in the heart and mind of God, his loving choice and predestination of us before the world began. But also from these heights, we can turn and look into the unending future of our salvation that awaits us, that we've just sung about, at our glorification that stretches on through the endless ages. And between the beginning of our salvation, And the eternal past, the beginning in the eternal past and the future of our salvation in unending eternity, we're also given to see two aspects of our salvation that occur in this present age during our lifetimes, namely calling and justification. And so together we have these five links in this unbroken chain of salvation, And all five are said to be the work of God himself, something he does. And that's what makes it so certain. This is what God does. And all those that that he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he glorified us. It's put in the past tense because in the mind of God, it is as good as done. And all those he foreknew, he also predestined. And all those he predestined, he also called. And all he called, he also justified. And all he justified, he also glorified. Which means that there's no losses along the way. Zero. None fall off the the plan of salvation from the beginning to the end. None he foreknew and predestined who will not also be called justified and glorified. So I say, what an amazing passage this is. It it has to be divine. Because who but God knows the beginning and end and all in between and speaks to us about it as certainties. Sadly, and I mean sadly, this glorious passage that we're looking at this morning has been used more for theological arguments than for its original purpose. And I must confess that myself. The original purpose of why this passage is in our Bibles is to give encouragement and absolute assurance to every Christian, every believer in Jesus, everyone who has been united to Christ by saving faith. So let's not jerk this passage out of the garden in which God has planted it. It, it. It's found in what is perhaps the greatest chapter of the Bible. A chapter that from beginning to end is full of the sweetest encouragements. That if we are in Christ, then we can know there is no condemnation for us. And if we are in Christ, we can know that the love of God, can, nothing can separate us from that love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord And therefore, we have the strongest statement after statement of assurance of our salvation. Each one of these have come as hell-deserving sinners to Jesus Christ. They came with nothing good to say for themselves, to commend themselves to his grace and forgiveness. And they threw themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ alone put all their trust for salvation in him, who he is, the eternal son of God, become man, what he'd done, his perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection. That was all their trust. And so by faith, they have been joined to Jesus Christ in this indissoluble union that we just sang of. They are in Christ and will ever be in Christ. Now, where are we in this glorious chapter 8 of Romans? Remember last week in verse 28, we saw the amazing truth that we know that all things work together for good to those who are the called, to those who, uh, to, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, that means that then, that we, as we saw last week, that even bad things, even evil things, even sinful things that others do to us and that we do ourselves, indeed all things, things that, that hurt, things that make us groan and weep and think that everything is against us are nevertheless in reality all being worked together for our good. Now, that is such a life-transforming truth that you cannot know it experientially and not live radically different because of it. Wouldn't you say that? that? That if you woke up every day and knew that anything that can happen to me today will only happen if God is going to use it for my good. Isn't that a wonderful way to wake up? To live every day of your life. What confidence, what assurance, what warm sunlight it throws on our darkest trials. What joy into our deepest sorrows and losses. What peace into all the perplexities and confusion that we face in life in a fallen world. And what comfort as we live with our own remaining sin yet within us and our own brokenness. To know that in all these things, every last circumstance in my life, God is working it together for my good. We can say with Spurgeon, our troubles have always brought us blessings. And they always will. They're the black chariots of bright grace. God promises to work them for our good. Now, the measure of your enjoyment of that truth, the measure of the power of that truth in your life, is according to Jesus, according to your faith, be it unto you. So, if you have a great faith in this truth of Romans 8.28, it will give you great joy, great peace, great comfort. If you have a little faith, you'll have a little joy and little peace. And little comfort. You see, it's according to your faith. Be it unto you. And so we cry, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. I want to believe this promise more. To my own good. To my own joy, peace, and comfort. And to your glory. As a man that takes you at your word. Now how does our faith grow then? If, if, if the enjoyment of this truth is, is based upon our faith in it, how does our faith grow? Well, Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word, the word of Christ. So faith comes and faith grows, not apart from the word, but in and by and through the word. And it's precisely to strengthen our faith in this stupendous promise of verse 28 that the Holy Spirit has Paul write more words in verses 29 and 30. This is God stooping to our weakness. He knows this is an amazing promise. If we ever get a hold of it, it will change the way we live every day of our lives. And he knows how weak our faith is, so he he stoops and he says here. Here's some more reasons how you can say, we know this is true. We know it because of this, what he's telling us in verses 29 and 30. So let's receive it as such, as food for faith. There's truckloads of food in these two verses for our faith, for our greater joy, peace, comfort, and confidence and assurance in God. In fact, the the, the further encouragement to our faith actually begins at the end of verse 28. We didn't really have time to look at it last week, so we're going to see the end of verse 28 this morning and then move on as these encouragements flow through verse 30. And this encouragement comes in the limitation that is placed upon the promise. For whom do all things work together for good? Well, clearly not everyone and the text limits it. it. It's to those who love God. And we looked briefly at that last week. But it's not just for those who love God. It goes on to say to those who have been called according to his purpose. The called according to his purpose. Now, these aren't two different groups that you have those who love God, and then you have those who. Have been called according to his purpose. No, those are just two things that describe the, the one group of people for whom God works all things together for good. They love God and they have been called according to his purpose. Now, it's that last phrase of having been called according to his purpose that adds tremendous assurance to verse 28. And the promise. So let's see how this works. In the first place, let's consider God's purpose. That's what it's saying. We have been called according to God's purpose. God never works without purpose or plan. Everything he does, every single thing he does, he does to fulfill some purpose in his heart and mind. Now, we too have purposes and plans that we're pursuing, don't we? Uh, uh, Reasons for what we do, for everything we do. Now, we may not be aware of it, but you can believe that behind everything we do, there's some purpose to why we've done it. So, God has purposes. We have purposes. But one of the big differences, the huge difference between God's purposes and ours is this God accomplishes all that He purposes to do, whereas many of our purposes fail to come to pass. Last year, I purposed to have fresh green beans all summer long with a staggered crop. But Peter Rabbit had other plans and purposes. For those beings. And so my purpose was frustrated. It was foiled. It didn't happen. How many of the things that you planned to do last month were somehow left still on the things to do list? You, you planned to do them, but something happened. Something failed because uh, some, sometimes those purposes fail because we just give up on it. We give up on it and, and we change our mind. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Other times, they fail because of things that happen beyond our control, like Peter Rabbit. We're, we're learning to control him, but it's, it's, you get what I mean. It's beyond your control, and that's our limitation. God has no such limitations. Amen. And it's against this backdrop of our own f- failed purposes that we see the greatness and majesty of our God, that he does whatever pleases him. In heaven, in earth, in the sea, in all their depths, there's no place in the whole universe where God's purposes will fail. Why? Because he's reigning over everything in heaven and earth. We had it in our memory verse for today, Daniel 4.35. He does as he pleases. With the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand does he purpose who can stop him no one now the the beauty is, is that uh, god even uses the attempts to stop his plans as the very means to fulfill his plans we, we don't have time to look in that but but you can see how the devil was was working to destroy christ and And the plan of salvation and yet God just uses his plan to bring him to the cross and there to defeat Satan. He uses the very attempts to foil his plans to fulfill them. What Satan means for evil, he works for good. That's our God and the Bible never wearies of telling this to us. There have been and there still are many people, many nations, many devils trying their best to frustrate God's purposes and plans. But just the opposite occurs. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Isaiah 40. Excuse me, 46, 10 to 11. This is something that God says sets me apart from anything else. There's none like me because of this. What is it, Lord? Well, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. And I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. He raised up Cyrus the Persian, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Now that's a characteristic of God alone. And the New Testament is just as bold to tell us as the old is. Ephesians 1.11, we heard it in the scripture reading. That in him, that is in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out most things in conformity with the purpose of his will. No, he works out all things in the purpose according to the purpose of his will. In other words, the outworking of his plan is exactly the same as the plan itself. There's not a shade of difference between what he planned and what he accomplished, what he purposed and what he did. This is a God whose purposes cannot fail or he simply is not God. He is not God most high. Now, when did God purpose and plan to save you? Well, again, from this passage, we, we can look back into eternity past. We read it in Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and predestined us to be adopted as sons because of his love. It was from the beginning that he chose you to be saved, Second Thessalonians 2, 14. So God planned to save you before the creation of the world. But he effectually called you to salvation when you heard the gospel and believed it. Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repented of your sins. So that's where God planned our salvation from eternity past. 2 Timothy 1.9. God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done. But because of his own purpose, his own purpose and grace, it was because of his own purpose that he powerfully called you to this holy life in Christ. So as Romans 8, 28 says, you were called according to purpose, to his purpose. Well, this then you can see is another reason why we know beyond a shadow of a doubt That God works all things together for our good. Because those he called, he also justifies. And those he justifies, he also glorifies. That's the ultimate good. Out of which he's working all things together for. He never fails to accomplish his purpose. It's the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. Rejoices that... Jesus Christ protects me so well that apart from the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. What a way to live, to know that my salvation was purposed. And I've been called to Christ according to his good and gracious purpose. David knew this truth he had a much smaller Bible than ours. And yet he he could say in Psalm 57, too, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He says the same in Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. There were many times that David did not look like he was going to be crowned the next king of Israel. That was God's purpose for him. He knew that he had been anointed. But for some dozen years, he's being chased like a rabbit by Saul and his army, seeking to kill him. And yet David says, God's purpose for me will be fulfilled. And if you've been called to Jesus Christ, you can say it with the equal assurance that he who has called me according to his purpose will fulfill that purpose in my glorification one day. So verses 29 to 30 go on then to spell out in greater detail just what that, that good purpose is for you, Christian. And in the future, we will be looking more fully at these words, each one of them, uh, for, that he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us justified and glorified. But, but for this morning, I just want you to focus in on God's purpose for which he called you. To Jesus Christ. If you know you're here. That he called you. And again we'll look at calling. But that means that not only has the invitation gone out to you. Come to me. You've actually come. It's an effectual call. Because not everybody who hears the call. Is going to be glorified or justified. No this is an effectual call. Where you actually came to Christ. And trusted him and took him and became joined to him. And if you know that then you can know that it was God's purpose for which he called you. Now, I want you to know that in the first place, God's purpose in saving you is much more than to save you from hell. That seems to be all that many people want out of salvation, just a free get-out-of-hell card. They would be content to live their whole lives as slaves to sin, just as long as there's no hell to pay at the end that way they get their cake and eat it too and that only that attitude only proves that they have never been called to Jesus Christ no no salvation is from sin that's why his name is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins and a life In slavery to sin is viewed by a Christian, a real Christian, as a living hell. That's a change of heart. He's been called to Jesus Christ. Now it's true that rescuing us from the coming wrath is no small part of our salvation. An eternity separated from God in torment, that is a big deal. I'm not wanting to dismiss it, but it is by no means all of our salvation. Nor do I believe it's the greatest purpose of our salvation. There are multiple purposes for God saving us. But I want you to notice what Paul says right here in verse 29. Look at it in your Bible. When he's discussing God's purpose for calling us. He says in verse 29. For those God foreknew he also predestined. For what purpose? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you know that God saved you and predestined you for this very purpose, that you might be conformed to the image, the likeness of Jesus Christ? Let's go back to the beginning and ask, what what was God's original purpose in in creating man and woman, mankind? How, How did he create him? In Genesis 1:27, as we've been hearing in the Sunday school hour, God created Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, both in the image of God. To be created in the image of God is to be created in his likeness. Remember when Jesus asked for a coin and asked the crowd a question, whose image or likeness is on the coin? Well, it was Caesar's likeness. There was a resemblance between what was on the coin and the real Caesar. Even so, mankind was made in the image of God to reflect his likeness in some ways, to resemble God. Now, there are significant differences between God and man. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and we are not. We don't share that similarity with God. But there are other ways that we have a likeness to God. We, we are creatures with a mind and a rationale. We, we can reason as God is a reasonable being. We, we have affections. We have a, a will. We're volitional creatures. And in these ways, we reflect a God who is has mind and rationale. Uh, capacity and affection and volition. Uh, We're like God in that we're made for relationship. God for all eternity had relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Trinity. And when he made us, he made us for relationship with a capacity for a relationship with him and then a, a relationship with each other in marriage and family and church and society. And then he also made us like him in that he gave us dominion to rule over the creation. He put everything under our feet. All flocks and herds, birds of the air, fish of the, of the sea. He put it under us to, that we might rule over it. A reflection of God's sovereign rule over heaven and earth. So in these ways we were made in his likeness. But most importantly we were created in his moral likeness. Which means that we were created upright, righteous, without sin. Capable of sin, which is something that's not true of our God, but we were made righteous as we came from the hand of God. I should say, Adam and Eve came from the hand of God, morally upright, without sin. Well, then you know that Adam and Eve fell into sin. And when they did, this image of God in man was marred, it was defaced, it was disfigured. And every image-bearing faculty of man was corrupted. And that's the fallen nature that Adam and Eve passed on to their sons. And they passed on to their children and to their children until you and I were born into this world. It was, yes, there is something of the image of God that remains in us, but it is marred, defaced, and disfigured. So, yes, we still have a... A mental capacity, a, a, a rationale, but our mind and understanding is darkened. We call light darkness and darkness light and evil good and good evil. Our mind is polluted. Our affections are all disordered. We love what we should hate and hate what we should love. And and things that should be way down here in priority number 10 and, and God should be number one. We, we've reversed them. All disordered in our affections and our will. We choose the wrong things, We choose what I want instead of what God wants. Relational? Yes, we're still relational. But our relationship with God is shattered. Sin has separated us from God. Our relationships with each other. Marriage? Where is marriage today? Where has marriage ever been? It is marred by sin. It is not perfect. We're broken. And it's seen in our relationships with children. We heard it in Sunday school. What kind of relationship is that? that would sacrifice our children. But what about our rule and dominion? How do we use authority? Well, we either abdicate authority and don't raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or we become authoritarian despots. And we rule without love and without servant, humble leadership. You see, every faculty is spoiled because of our moral lack of likeness to God. And that Moral aspect influences every other aspect of our image of God. It's it's defaced. It's marred. Think of it as a beautiful original portrait hanging on a wall over in the Louvre. And it being severely vandalized. Somebody comes in with knives. They they slash it. They they paint over it. they, They tear parts out of it. You can still tell afterwards it's a human face, yes, I can see that, but it's so damaged and defaced that you, you can't tell what that person really looked like. That's something of the fallen image in man. We, we have, yes, these capacities for greatness, but they're, 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 they're marred, they're, they're twisted and corrupted. And this is, this is the, uh, the identity crisis that's happening in our own day in a big way. Man was created to bear the image of God, but, but God's invisible. We, we can't see him. And man, who, who was made in his image, is not what he once was either. And now he's sinful and corrupt with God's image defaced in him vandalized by sin and Satan. No wonder we don't know who we are. Who am I? Am I a man or a woman or a cat or a unicorn? What is my identity? We don't know because we, where can we see the image of God? We can't see God. He's invisible. We can't see man's bearing that image because it's all distorted and, and destroyed with little to see. I ask you, did God just scrap his purpose and say, well, oh, well, that was a good idea, but I guess it just didn't work out. So that's it. No, his purpose cannot fail. Job knew it. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And so God designed a way of salvation with the very purpose of restoring in his image in fallen man. And central to this plan was sending his own eternal son in human flesh. Who Colossians 1.15 says is himself the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Look at the image in him and look at God and it's the exact representation Here's the original painting, unmarred, in perfection. So in seeing Jesus Christ, the perfect God man, we're seeing what we were meant to be as image bearers of God. And it's only through salvation in Christ that God's image then is being restored in us. This is the end to which he predestined us to be conformed to the likeness, the image of his son. You see it there in verse twenty nine. That was the end in view that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. It's the purpose for which he saved us and called us that we might bear his likeness again. And it's the highest good toward which he is working all things together. To restore fallen man into the full image of God when we're glorified. The son of God came to be, and became like us. That we might become like him. Not in his deity. But in his perfect humanity. To once again realize. Why we were created. What we were created to be. What our image is. What, what, what our purpose is. Ephesians 4.24, having put off the old self, the self we were born with, and having put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Salvation is a supernatural moral transformation in which we're newly created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator colossians 3:10 so god's recreating in christ jesus a new humanity to fulfill his original purpose for man it begins with a new birth with a new heart and and then the makeover continues throughout our lifetime 2 corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 tells us something about the process listen to this we speaking of us who are in christ called to Christ, we who with unveiled faces all behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The transformation into his likeness, his image is happening from one stage, one stage of glory to another. It's it's ongoing in the Christian's life. So lost person, if you want to find yourself, don't look within. You'll never understand the image of God by looking at the broken image that you are. No, look outside. Look to Christ. You want to find who who you were made to be, open your Bible and look at Jesus. See what What it says about him, because he's the perfect image of God. That's what we were made to be like Jesus. Don't consult your feelings. Consult God as he's revealed Christ in the scriptures. He's the original pattern. In which we become the image bearers. And and Christians, since this was God's predestinating purpose for all his called ones, you can be assured it's going to happen. That one day you will perfectly bear the image of God. Likeness to Jesus with, without sinful thoughts, motives, words, actions, reactions, none of it. Reflecting the beauty of holiness found in our Savior. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-nine: Just as we've borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. First John 3 2, we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There again, it's seeing, beholding his glory. That even now we're being transformed, and when we see him face to face, we will be like him. Bearing his image perfectly. Not just in our souls, but even in our bodies. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 3:21. That we're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven, who by the power that enables him to subdue all things beneath his feet will, will transform these lowly bodies that they might become like his glorious body. You see, this, this conformity to Christ... It's going on now in our souls, our hearts, our minds and will and emotions. And it feeds out into our relationship with God and each other. And the way we rule and, and handle the things God, the responsibilities God's given us. But but one day it's, it's going to permeate us throughout all that we are as, as, as body, soul creatures. We're going to be made like the Lord Jesus. And we'll have a body even that... Bears the likeness of his glorious body. Three applications as we conclude. It's for you who love God. You who have been called according to his purpose. The first application is assurance. That's the whole reason for the chapter. And here is the strongest assurance for your final salvations. Your your final salvation. God says he called you according to this very purpose. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ, His Son. And His predestined purpose will not fail because He is God Most High. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. And that glorification is so certain that He puts it in the past tense. It will happen. It's as if it has happened in the mind of God. We're going to share in his glory and in his perfect likeness. No longer from one stage of glory to another, progressively, at last fully glorified, completed, and now to be enjoyed through the endless ages. That's the first application. Take this assurance to yourself. If you have been called to Jesus Christ, you've come to him. Take this assurance to yourself. Second, pursuit. Be clear about God's purpose for your salvation and then pursue it yourself. God's made his purpose for saving you very clear. It wasn't just to save you, to keep you out of hell. It wasn't just to keep you uh, from all things painful and difficult in this life. It's to conform you to the likeness of his son. It's to restore that fallen image of God in you through Jesus Christ. So if, if that's God's purpose that he is pursuing in your life, I, I need to ask you, is that your purpose? Is that what you are chasing after with all of your strength? To be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, if God is pursuing one purpose in your life and you are pursuing another, there's going to be nothing but conflict Frustration, disappointment, and even anger at God like we saw in Jonah. No small part of our discontentment in life, Christian, our lack of peace and joy can be traced right back to this, that my purposes and pursuits are at odds with what God's purposes and pursuits are. That's where the tension comes his aim is to make you more like Jesus. And he sometimes uses sickness. He sometimes uses pain, hardship, disease, trials, suffering, loss to bring you into greater conformity to Christ. But if you're not pursuing likeness to Jesus, you'll spend the better part of your energies in prayer trying to get out of the school of affliction that he is using to make you more like Christ. Instead of learning greater likeness to Jesus, instead of enduring hardship as discipline that you might share in his holiness, you'll be discouraged and depressed. And chafing that things aren't going your way. God's not treating you well and you're a bit miffed at God. Like Jonah was. The fact is, things are going exactly the way that God wants them to go. And as painful and difficult as they may be, and we all have those things in our lives, they're the very instruments that he's using to work together for your good. They're the ingredients in that delicious pie. The painful, disagreeable ingredients that he's working together for a a good and glorious end to make you more like Jesus. So how do you pursue greater likeness to Jesus? You see, this is God's purpose for you. How do you get on board and pursue it? Remember what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. It's as we behold the Lord's glory that we are being transformed, conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's as as we see him, as we contemplate him, we become like him. So are you daily beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as He is revealed in Scripture. This is where you meet Jesus. This is where you follow Him through uh, the, the roads of Galilee and, and through the streets of Jerusalem and you see Him. And as you see Him, you become like Him, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the Spirit helps you read. He, he shines His light upon the page over your shoulder. It says, look at Jesus, John. Look look at him under stress. He's not worried and all fretting. Look at him over here. He's being falsely accused. He's not hitting back. Look at him here. Look how kind he is to this prostitute. Look how how good he is to this Pharisee who's who's trying to trip him. And as we see him, the spirit works this same likeness of him into us. So are you are you Daily coming and and having your look at Jesus. Are you walking through life with him? Are you doing all of life with him? You you know, those who walk with the wise become wise. And if you walk with Jesus, you will become like Jesus. We become what we worship. and, And if you're walking through life, worshiping him and living with him, you become like him. And so Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Come on. Stick your neck under the other side of this yoke and and walk with me and learn from me who is gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. We, we, We learn from him. We become like him as we walk with him. In other words, conformity to Christ is to happen in communion with Christ. It doesn't happen any other way. We've got to get to Jesus. We've got to see him we got to walk with Him. we got to watch Him. And it's through that process that the Spirit makes us more gentle and lowly, more forgiving like He forgives, loving like He loves, serving like He serves, doing good to others like He did to others. We are being conformed to Him as we see Him. So assurance is the application, the pursuit. And then... Lastly, we have the chief end of man. The chief end of man. The chief purpose of of our existence. You see, there's a a higher motivation for your conformity to God's Son. It's higher than than finding your own fulfillment in in discovering what you were meant to be. That's a glorious thing, isn't it? To to know who I am. I'm image of God. And in looking at Jesus, I see, oh, that's what I was created to be like. And the more I become like him, the more satisfactory life becomes. The more of that fullness of shalom and blessedness and fruition, that, that becomes ours. But there's something even beyond that. There's, a, there's a, a higher motivation even behind our being conformed to Christ than our own happiness. And it's given at the end of verse 29, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's purpose in your salvation does not terminate on you, but upon the glory of his son. When God's purpose is fulfilled at the end in making you like him, how his son will be glorified. You remember here on earth, he died in humiliation and shame with only a few ragtag followers. And he has remained for some 2,000 years now, despised and rejected by this world. Little more than a curse word in many hearts. But that, in that day, in the day when we're glorified and we, we take on and we will bear the full likeness of Jesus Christ, how the tables will be turned as he is seen to be the firstborn of many brothers. That in fact, by his life and death and resurrection, he was bringing many sons to glory. It wasn't seen there on the cross. It looked like failure, shame, humiliation. But in fact, he's bringing many sons to glory in this way. In fact, a multitude that no man can number And he is the firstborn, the elder brother of this family of God. In the Hebrew home, the the firstborn was the one to receive the highest honor and glory in the home, privilege. there he is on his throne, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, having triumphed and, and gathered around him, is the sea of many brothers that he has brought to glory. And they're all singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and praise. And every last one of them are perfectly bearing the likeness of their elder brother so that he will become the firstborn of many brothers. Brothers who are looking just like him, bearing the family likeness just like Jesus. And it's all because of Jesus. And in that day, all glory and honor and praise for conforming us to his image will go to him and his glorious work of salvation. So when we're glorified, he will be glorified. When we're fully conformed to the image of Christ, he will be honored. And that's the chief end of man. That's the chief purpose why we draw breath, why we get out of bed in the morning, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's the ultimate good for which he's working all things together in your life. There's more than our good at stake in this. There's the glory of God's eternal son. Will that not motivate us to pursue greater likeness to Jesus? That he might be glorified. And that I might be one of those who are bearing that likeness. More and more in this life, but in that Day, to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Will that not motivate you to, to kill that sin, that stubborn sin? Will that not motivate you to, to move uh, out with him in love, aggressively going after others, taking his gospel? Our conformity to Christ is to be sought then for the glory of Christ. To this end he came. To this end he lived and died and rose again to bring many sons to glory. To that end, he's coming again to take us to be to himself and, and to see his glory, the glory that the Father gave him before the creation of the world. And there we, we, will, we will be a new, a new human family who once again reflect the glory of his own image. May the Lord give us a heart for it and give us the joy of pursuing what we were made to do to his glory and praise. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 460. 460. We're going to sing the, the second tune. And in it, we're going to cry out to God, Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Here we are. We're in process. We're here in the middle and called, But this is where we're going. And, and it's that hope that Raises this prayer to God. Come and finish that good work You've begun in us. Let's stand and sing it. Four, six, oh, the second tune. Now, Father, we are indeed amazed that ever You would begin that work of salvation in us when we had nothing to commend ourselves to your love, only that which was obnoxious to your holiness and to your wrath. Thank you for your grace that that chose us and predestined us and has called us and justified us. Would you now continue that good work in us until we see you face to face, Lord Jesus, and that image is fully restored to your eternal praise, to our everlasting good,